0: where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Chapter 7 of England and the Hundred Years' War by Charles William Chadwick Oman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Richard II. The Years of the Minority 1377 to 1388. The accession to the throne of the late king's grandson, Richard II, a bright, promising lad of eleven, put an end to the domination of John of Gaunt. The Princess of Wales and the friends of her deceased husband, who had brought up the young king, had never been allied to Lancaster and had viewed his movements with suspicion he had no longer the power to use the royal name for his own profit as he had done for the last few years. Facing the situation with more wisdom than might have been expected, the Duke made no attempt to hold on to the helm, but yielded with a good grace and entered into a formal reconciliation with Wickham and the other chiefs of the Constitutional Party. Peter de la Mer was released from prison the Londoners were pardoned for their riot of the preceding February, and it was agreed that old enmity should be forgotten. The governance of the realm was placed in the hands of a council in which both the parties were fairly represented. The first parliament of the new reign passed two important pieces of constitutional legislation one providing that during a minority the king's ministers should be chosen by the two houses. The other was to the effect that all acts passed by Parliament could be set aside only by the consent of Parliament. This second point was one which was not to be fully established for three hundred years. As late as the time of James II, King still claimed to have a dispensing power which overrode the statute book. Though the danger of domestic troubles was for a time at an end, the condition of politics was yet far from satisfactory. Charles V of France had refused to renew the truce which ran out in the summer of 1377, and the Hundred Years' War had once more passed into an acute stage. The campaigns which followed were neither so disastrous nor so decisive as those of 1373 through 75, but their results were on the whole unfavorable. Nothing of importance was lost, The whole inland had already fallen into the hands of the French, and the grasp of the English on the coast towns was very firm, but on the other hand nothing was regained, and the expenses of the war were ruinous. In 1380 an expedition under the king's youngest uncle, Thomas of Woodstock, landed at Calais and cut its way through Picardy-Champagne and the Orléanois to Brittany. It was a mere repetition of Lancaster's march in 1373. Once more the French avoided open battle and contented themselves with defending their walled towns and cutting off the foragers and stragglers of the invading host. Earl Thomas reached Vannes without any overwhelming disaster, but with an army too much harassed and worn down to accomplish the delivery of Brittany from the French. John V., the faithful ally of England since his accession in 1345, was at last driven to abandon the alliance and make peace with the enemy. He was recognized as Duke by the French government in return for his submission, and at last recovered the whole of his dominions, 1380. The abortive expedition to Brittany had been very costly, and heavy taxation was necessary to pay the troops, whose wages were six months in arrear. Accordingly, the Chancellor, Simon of Sudbury, Archbishop of Canterbury, laid before the Parliament of Northampton projects for the raising of a sum of one hundred and sixty thousand pounds. The method finally adopted for collecting it was a poll tax on the whole of the inhabitants of the realm above the age of fifteen. It was graduated upwards from one shilling paid by the poor to three pounds imposed on the richest individuals. The imposition of this tax, which pressed very heavily on the laboring classes, was the cause of the explosion of a discontent which had been brewing ever since the social troubles that had followed the Black Death and the statute of laborers. The Peasant Revolt, or Wat Tyler's Rebellion, as it is sometimes called, was not the result of the poll tax only. That imposition, though bitterly resented, was but the occasion and not the cause of the rising, just as the greased cartridges in 1857 were not the cause of the Indian mutiny. The origins of the trouble were many and varied much in different places. In London and the towns the discontent was largely political. The people resented the disastrous results of the French War and the heavy taxation which resulted from it. They laid the blame on the governing classes without much distinction of persons and parties, save that John of Gaunt was especially singled out as responsible for the present unhappy situation. In the shires, on the other hand, the explosion was mainly the result of social causes and especially of the grievances of villainage. We have had already occasion to remark that the statute of laborers had estranged the landowners from their peasants the attempt to enforce the ancient dues of compulsory labor from the servile tenants had led to much bad blood. Everyone wished to hold his land at a moderate money rent, and not to be compelled to give forced labor for his lord's demesne farms. Wherever the owner of a manor insisted on carrying on the old system, discontent was rife. In many parts the peasantry had entered into secret clubs and combinations to resist their masters, and these societies seemed to have had much to do with the organization of the rising. But this grievance alone does not suffice to explain the revolt. Its outbreak was as violent in Kent where villainage no longer existed as in any other shire. There was a bitter feeling abroad against the tyrannical forest laws, against the tolls and market dues which raised the price of provisions, against the whole tribe of lawyers whose subtleties and legal fictions were thought to prevent the poor man from obtaining justice. In some parts, too, the rising was strongly anti-clerical. It was very violent in places like St. Albans and Bury St. Edmunds, where the tenants of the church had tried in vain to get from their abbots the charters and privileges which most other small towns enjoyed. Very important also, although it has sometimes been exaggerated, was the influence of Wycliffe's denunciation of the clergy during the last ten years. His teaching had filtered down to the lower strata of society in a form which took the shape of socialism. He had preached that obedience was not due to spiritual superiors of evil life— and that it was expedient that the church should be deprived of the over-great wealth which was corrupting her. He had founded an order of poor priests, who went about the country spreading his doctrines, and in the mouths of his more fanatical disciples his teaching took an almost anarchical turn. They denounced all obedience to unrighteous governors, lay or clerical, and spoke as if poverty was the only virtue and riches the sole source of evil. The most violent language of this kind was used by a wandering priest named John Ball, who was well known all over the southern shires. He was not a Wycliffeite, since he had been in trouble for his teaching long before Wycliffe's name had been heard outside Oxford, but his addresses pressed to their logical extreme all the ideas which underlay the new doctrine, his famous text, When Adam Delved and Eve span." who was then the gentleman, was the prelude to sermons urging that all men must be made equal, and all property forcibly divided into equal shares. For the most part, however, the men who joined in the revolt were not bent on setting the whole world to rights, but on getting rid each of his own special grievance. In June of 1381 the rising broke out in all the eastern counties from Kent as far as Yorkshire, with a simultaneity that shows that it must have been prepared beforehand. Whether the organization had been made by the secret societies of the laborers or by the traveling agitators is not certain, though we know that John Ball had held a meeting in London just before the Rising with some of the men who afterwards led the revolt in Norfolk and Suffolk. The first riot broke out, it is said, at Dartford in Kent, where a certain tiller, slew one of the collectors of the poll tax who had grossly insulted his daughter. Whatever may be the truth of this story, it is certain that all Kent rose in arms as if on a given signal, and a few days afterwards Essex and the eastern counties followed suit, June 1381. In all the regions over which the rising spread there was a certain amount of bloodshed and a good deal of plunder." The persons who were slain were mainly justices of the peace, lawyers, and officials connected with the levying of the poll tax. But local quarrels and grievances led to other murders, such as those of the prior of Barry St. Edmunds and the governor of Norwich Castle. Everywhere the manners of unpopular landlords were sacked, and manor rolls and records of taxation sought out and burnt. In Cambridge, where the town and the university had an old quarrel, the mob burst open the university church and burnt all the charters and muniments, crying, away with the learning of clerks, away with it. After a few days of uproar, the bands of the home counties began to move on London. Those of Kent, under a leader who called himself Watt Tyler, encamped on Blackheath, while the men of Hertfordshire took post at Highbury and those of Essex at Hampstead. They all agreed in swearing that they were true to the King and only desired to deliver him from his evil counsellors. The gates of London were shut against them by the Mayor Walworth, but there was no other attempt to resist them, for the government had been taken by surprise and had no time to collect troops. But on June 12th the mob of the city rose and opened the gates to the insurgents. They spread themselves through the streets, not indulging in general plunder but sacking and burning the Savoy, the palace of John of Gaunt, and slaying many foreign merchants and certain persons against whom they had special grievances. The young king, who had retired into the tower, tried to parley with them. The demands which they sent him were not so wild as might have been expected. They asked for a free pardon, for the abolition of all villainage, for the removal of many taxes and tolls, and for a permission to all who had formerly held land on a servile tenure to become instead free tenants of their farms at the rent of fourpence an acre, it was evident that the majority had not been led away by the teaching of John Ball and his fellows. Seeing that their terms were not altogether impossible, the young king, who displayed admirable courage and coolness, though he was but fifteen years of age, bade them meet him at mile-end, then, a great open space, and there discussed their grievances. The majority came to the colloquy, but while it was going on, Wat Tyler and John Ball, with about four hundred riotous followers, burst into the tower and there murdered the Archbishop Simon of Sudbury, who was specially hated as the framer of the poll tax, and with him Sir Robert Hales, the treasurer, and John Legg, the chief collector of the tax. While this dreadful scene was going on, the young king had been addressing the main body of the insurgents at Mile End. After some discussion he agreed to grant their demands, and thirty clerks were set at once to work to draw out charters granting free pardons and the abolition of villainage for the inhabitants of each town or hundred. That evening the majority of the insurgents went quietly home, having, as they thought, obtained their desires. June 13th but Tyler and many thousands of the rougher and wilder sort remained behind. Some of them were fanatics, and others were scenting more plunder and bloodshed. Next day the king summoned Tyler and his followers to meet him at Smithfield, trusting to make terms with them, as he had with their fellows, but the insurgent chief had gone too far to feel himself safe, and was set on keeping up the tumult, lest he should be called to justice for the murders of Sudbury and Hales. He bore himself insolently at the meeting and began wrangling and insulting the king's attendants. This so excited William Walworth the mayor that he drew a cutlass from under his gown and hewed down the rebel from his horse. Thereupon one of the king's squires ran in and struck him dead as he lay. Richard and his whole party was within an ace of perishing, for the multitude, seeing their leader fall, bent their bows and were about to let fly but the courageous young king rode forward among them, crying that he himself would now be their leader, and would see that justice was done to them. They hesitated a moment, and then one by his noble bearing followed him to Islington, where in the open field he distributed to them charters like those which had been given to their fellows on the previous day. They then dispersed, and he was able to ride back to his mother, swearing, that he had this day won back his heritage and the realm of England which was lost, June 14th. When the insurgents had gone home, the knights and nobles flocked into London with thousands of armed retainers. The landholding classes were very wroth that their villains had been freed without their consent, and said that Richard had given away what was not his own. In spite of the free pardon that had been granted, Many scores of the leaders of the rebels in Kent and the home counties were seized and hung. Among them were John Ball and Jack Straw, who had been captain of the Essex men. In Norfolk, the warlike Bishop Dispenser took arms and put down the eastern insurgents, slaying their leader, the priest John Raw. A few months later, Parliament met and voted that all the charters issued by the King were null and void, because they had been issued without the sanction of the two houses. Richard made some attempt to keep his promise to the insurgents and tried to get his abolition of villainage confirmed, but the voice of lords and commons was given unanimously against him, and he had to yield. The only grace that he obtained was that in January 1382, on the occasion of his marriage to Anne of Bohemia, the young daughter of the emperor, Charles IV, Fourth a general amnesty was published for the surviving insurgents, but all their prominent leaders had already perished. Nevertheless, it must not be forgotten that in one way the rising had not been without successful results. The landowning classes had been so thoroughly frightened by the outbreak that they dealt more cautiously with the peasants for the future, for the next century villainage was silently disappearing as the lords allowed their men to commute labor for money rents and to become free tenants. The grievances of villainage were never again the cause of insurrection, for they gradually disappeared. In the next century, we shall see that the great popular rising of Jack Cade, which in many features recalls that of Wat Tyler, was political and not social in its aims and ends. Richard was now in his sixteenth year and had shown that he possessed both courage, ready wit, and a heart that could sympathize with his subjects. But he was not allowed to assume control of the administration. All through his reign he was the victim of a tribe of ambitious uncles and cousins who were determined to keep him in the background as much as possible. John of Gaunt was now not the only source of trouble. His youngest brother, Thomas of Woodstock, who had become Duke of Gloucester, was a far worse man, domineering, arrogant, selfish, and given to all manner of intrigues. He and Lancaster fell out, and their quarrels allowed the king some liberty, but in 1385 the elder duke disappeared for some time from the scene. By his marriage with Constance of Castile, he had a claim on the inheritance of Pedro the Cruel, and in the hope of making himself a ruler in Spain, he went overseas with all the followers he could raise he allied himself with his son-in-law the king of portugal and at first conquered many towns in the northern provinces of castile but his army wasted away the castilians hated the memory of don pedro too much to submit to his heir and after long struggles 1385 to 89 john was to return to england disappointed and grown old before his time During his absence, Richard had reached the age of twenty, and at last assumed the governance of his realm. His chosen ministers were Michael de la Pole and Robert de Vere, Earl of Oxford. The former was a man of a new family, his father had been a wealthy merchant of Hull, but he himself took to war and politics, rose to the front by his ability, and was now in his middle age made Chancellor and afterwards Earl of Suffolk. De Vere, on the other hand, held one of the oldest earldoms in England. He was a young man of the same age as the king, and had become his favorite companion. To raise him to a position above the rest of the barons, Richard made him Marquis of Dublin and Duke of Ireland. After these two friends the king placed most confidence in his half-brothers, the sons of the Princess of Wales, by her first marriage, Thomas Holland, Earl of Kent, and John Holland, Who was afterwards made Earl of Huntingdon? De la Pole and de Vere could not in any sense be called favourites in the objectionable sense of the term. The experience of one and the ancient nobility of the other made them persons whom it was quite fitting that the king should choose as his ministers. It may be that Michael was somewhat avaricious, and Robert somewhat vain and light headed, but we have only their enemies' word for the accusation. Their rule was certainly no worse than that of their predecessors. The plot which was made against them must accordingly be attributed to jealousy and ambition and not to patriotism. Thomas of Gloucester, who was set on holding the chief power under his nephew, the king, grew into a conspiracy certain discontented nobles, the chief of whom were the earls of Arundel, Warwick, and Nottingham, and the young Henry of Bolingbroke, the eldest son of the Duke of Lancaster. In the Parliament of 1386, Gloucester and his friends made a great stir against the ministers, accusing them of embezzling the king's money, mismanaging the war with France, which still dragged on its weary length, and refusing to carry on the government according to the advice of the council and the two houses. De La Pole was impeached and declared guilty, although the accusations were wholly unfair but the moment that the Parliament had dispersed, the King gave him his pardon and restored him to the office of Chancellor. This action of Richard's gave the conspirators the opportunity which they desired. At Gloucester's call they took arms and called out their retainers. Marching on London, they found no one to oppose them and seized the town. They called themselves the Lord's Appellant, because they appealed or accused of treason, Suffolk, Oxford, and certain other of the king's advisers. Richard bade his followers take arms, and De Vere gathered some levies in the western counties. But at Ratcot Bridge on the upper Thames, near Lechlade, he was beset by a far greater host which the insurgent barons had sent out against him. After a brief skirmish, the king's men surrendered, De Vere escaping with difficulty by swimming his horse across the river. He fled to France, where he was soon afterwards joined by de la Pole, who had also succeeded in getting away in safety from England. But the greater part of Richard's minor partisans did not leave the realm. They had not foreseen the merciless character of the lord's appellant. Gloucester had determined to break the spirit of the king and to deal so harshly with his instruments that no man should ever dare to serve him again in February 1388, met the Merciless Parliament, which was wholly dominated by the Lord's Appellant, who had taken care to pack the Commons with their adherents. Gloucester behaved to his nephew with studied insolence. He brought out the documents which related to the deposition of Edward II, read them to the King before the Assembly, and openly told him that there were good reasons for treating him as his great-grandfather had been treated but for once he should be spared and placed for the future in the hands of strong and wise counsellors. The Parliament then proceeded to impeach the King's ministers. Suffolk and Oxford had crossed the seas. So had Neville, Archbishop of York, who also was cited as an offender. But there were at hand Tressilian, the Chief Justice, Sir Simon Burley, an old friend of the Black Prince, who had been the King's tutor in his boyhood, and Nicholas Bramber, and ex-mayor of London, all prominent servants of the unfortunate Richard. After the mere mockery of a trial, Tressilian and Bramber were hung and burly beheaded. Three knights of the king's household, named Beecham, Burners, and Salisbury, were subsequently arrested, tried, and executed. The Parliament then voted liberal supplies for the expenses of government, from which the lord's appellants were not ashamed to take 20,000 pounds, to compensate them for the trouble and expense to which they had been put. Finally, the king was made to renew his coronation oath before the Archbishop of Canterbury in St. Paul's Cathedral, and after assisting at the ceremony, the merciless Parliament dispersed. June 1388. End of chapter 7.